Uh, As school holidays are getting uh, closer and Christmas is just around the corner, it's four weeks now, sorry to freak you out, uh, there is an unspeakable horror that threats us all. The Christmas to-do list. Hands up if you like doing to-do lists. See, if you don't know who in your family likes to-do lists, there's a chance that it's you. Uh, My wife, Mel, previously worked full-time as event coordinator, and so she loves to-do lists. She she hasn't just been spending a couple of weeks on her Christmas to-do list. She's been spending months. So she's got things like who's coming to stay with us, what presents we need to buy, uh, what presents she's going to make, we need a new tree, we need need new decorations. Um, The list goes on and on and on and then she starts making my list and so I need to weed the garden I need to mow the lawn if it stops raining I need to trim the hedges I need to finish painting that front room if you've seen that that front room of our place that has half one color half the other I mean my list just goes on and on and on but the reason why we like making to-do lists is because we long for the list to be finished Whether it's a work project or school for the kids or or just 2021, we long for the list to be finished because when it's finished, there is reassurance and hope. Uh, So for you, it might be the Christmas list. It might be COVID. You just wish that it was finished. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's the mess of your life. The decisions you have made or the consequences of someone else's decisions, uh, you just want the mess to be finished. Or maybe it's watching a loved one suffer, walking with them through sickness or even death, and you just want it to be finished. Or maybe it's a guilt towards God, this sense that you can never really be at peace with God or forgiven. Kinsley Amos was a famous English writer. He wrote 20 novels in, um, in the 20th century. And uh, he famously, he was asked by the BBC what he thought of Christianity. And he said this, One of the great benefits is that you can be forgiven of your sins, which must be a wonderful thing. I mean, I carry my sins around with me. There's nobody there to forgive them. Uh, Kingsley Amos is not a Christian, but he's identifying that longing that we all have, that deep need that we all share for our sins to be forgiven. You see, the danger is as Christians, when we don't feel like we are right with God, we can make a list of our own. Not just the Christmas list, but a spiritual list. A list of things that we think make us right with God because of what we do. What's on your spiritual list? Maybe it's uh, how you serve at church. Maybe it's the number of times you come to church. Maybe it's Bible reading. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's the way that you raise your children. These are all very, very good things. But the danger is that if we focus on this list, we stop focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. So what does John focus on in his gospel? Three words. It is finished. And so we're going to have a look at that this afternoon. 
Uh, Today we're in John's Gospel. It's an eyewitness account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, John spends a third of his Gospel in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. He wants us to slow down and to take in all the details. He wants us to ask questions like, why did Jesus say he was thirsty on the cross? Did he just want a Coke? I mean, uh, what's with the, the soldiers and the spear? Only John's Gospel mentions the spear. Why does he? And I mean, what's with Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus at the end? Uh, like, um, Nicodemus has 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh. Where did he get 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh? And did he bring them in a wheelbarrow to the cross? I, I don't know. John wants us to slow down and to focus on Jesus, to see that he is the Son of God and to find life in his name. Uh, so let's have a look at verse 28. It's our first point. It is finished. John says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus says, it is finished, he's actually saying, it is accomplished. Uh, And in the original text, this word appears three times. So in verse 28, uh, it says, everything had now been finished, that's accomplished. Verse 30, Jesus on the cross, it is finished, it's accomplished. And even verse 28, when it says that scripture would be fulfilled... Scripture is accomplished. We also see the same word in John chapter 17, the night before Jesus died. It should come up on the screen. Jesus prays this to his heavenly Father. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus, the word became flesh, was sent into the world with a divine checklist. And he has been accomplishing these things. So he was sent to glorify the Father by preaching the word of God, by performing signs that reveal his glory, by displaying the character of God. And now that he has finished his earthly ministry, it's time for God's king to be lifted up on the cross so that the Father may glorify the Son, and so we may see Jesus for who he truly is. And so when Jesus is on the cross, knowing that all of these things have been accomplished, that he has been given to do, he says, I am thirsty. And he's quoting Psalm 69. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said whenever a gospel writer uses a psalm, he doesn't want us to proof text it. He wants us to read the whole psalm so we understand what we're looking at. So Psalm 69 is a royal psalm that speaks about the suffering of God's king. In verse 21, uh, the king says that instead uh, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Uh, This is what Jesus is quoting. Earlier in the psalm, we read that God's king says this in Psalm 69, that zeal for your house, 
that's God's house. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you, that's God, have fallen on me. The king of Psalm 69 lives in absolute commitment and perfect obedience to God. He calls people to love God, to live for God, and to follow God's law. But his zeal for God and God's glory has consumed him. Now, this doesn't mean that he's turned into a maniac. It's consumed him because the hatred that people have for God has fallen on him. The king of Psalm 69 becomes like a sacrificial lightning rod for all people who hate God. But at the end of the psalm, the king is resurrected by God. He's elevated God and he becomes a source of salvation for all people. And John... John wants us to use this psalm so we understand what Jesus is doing when he's on the cross. So King Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He called people to repent and believe. He called people to love God and to live for God and to obey his law. And on the cross, Jesus is receiving the hatred of those who oppose God. All the hostility and hatred in the world, in a world that rebels against God, is directed towards God's king. And so Jesus, King Jesus, is on the cross like a sacrificial lightning rod for all those who hate God. And ultimately, it is King Jesus who will be rescued by God, elevated by God, and become a source of salvation for all of God's people. So when Jesus is on the cross, in verse 28, and when Jesus says, it is finished, Jesus is saying that as God's king, he has accomplished the plans and purposes of God. I mean, this moment is the climax of the whole Old Testament. All of God's revelation and activity has been moving towards this point. And Jesus, in full obedience to the Father, accomplishes his eternal plan of redemption so that we may have eternal life. Which means when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, he's not giving up, he's not resigning to death. He has not been overcome. This is not a picture of weakness. This is not a cry of defeat. This is a cry of victory, that he has fulfilled God's plans perfectly. It is finished. So, friends, when you look at the cross, can I ask you, what do you see? God is not giving us the martyr of religious zealots. God is not giving us a revolutionary's death at the hand of the Roman empires. A God is giving us assurance, assurance to the sufficient work of the cross. You see, my wife loves to do to-do lists. Me, not so much. It's probably because she does them for me. Uh, But we all long for the list to be finished, don't we? Because we want that assurance that the job's done. And in Jesus' words... God gives us this assurance that the saving work of Christ is finished. See, on the cross, Jesus fulfills the law in full. On the cross, Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system in full. On the cross, the debt of sin is paid in full. 
which means Jesus said it is finished. And when he died, he died with a purpose. He also fulfilled scripture, which is our second point. Um, Have a look at verse 31. John goes on to record the aftermath of Jesus' death. Verse 31, Now it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Friends, you'll have to forgive the brutal details, but crucifixion was a brutal way to die. It was equal parts torture execution and shame. The Romans would leave the the corpses up on the cross for sometimes days to deter criminals. But for the Jewish people, it was a special day. It was the day of preparation for a special kind of Sabbath, the Sabbath at Passover. And so the Jews go to Pilate and they ask for the bodies as a sign of respect to be taken down. Uh, And so the soldiers... To speed up the death process, break the legs of the criminals so they can suffocate faster and die quicker. But when they come to Jesus, they notice something strange. They didn't expect something that shouldn't have happened. Jesus is already dead. Have a look at verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And still, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Um, it should not surprise you, but I am not a cardiologist. Uh, I should never be given that much responsibility. Uh, but a friend of mine is. And so he tells me that in the final hours of Jesus' life, Jesus' heart would have been surrounded by fluid in the pericardial sac. So when the spear enters Jesus' heart, it's full of blood and fluid, and that comes rushing out. Which means that the piercing of the heart is actually, well, there's actually no symbolic meaning to it. John is not referring to the blood of the Lord's Supper. He's not referring to living water or even the Spirit. John wants us to know without a doubt that Jesus is dead. Which means he wasn't replaced with a lookalike on the cross. Now I know that sounds really weird, but it's actually one of the theories or the objections that people use to try and disprove the resurrection of Jesus. People say, well, it wasn't Jesus on the cross, it was just a lookalike. You remember in, um, in the other Gospels, Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross for Jesus? Well, some people argue, Jesus did the old switcheroo. And so while Simon was carrying the cross, Jesus hid in the bushes, and uh, poor Simon, he gets put on the cross. And then when the tomb is opened, aha, Jesus, he's there, he's alive. Um, other people say that Jesus merely fainted on the cross, and that when he was in the tomb, he kind of came back, um, came back to consciousness. Uh, other people say that he will, he kind of passed out. He almost died, and someone snuck in and performed, you know, first-century CPR on Jesus's body, uh, and then Jesus was back to life again. But the eyewitness account from John says no. Jesus died on his own terms. Jesus said what he wanted to say. And he is most certainly dead. Verse 35, so that we would trust the testimony of John and that we would believe. And once again, we're reminded that even 
in the death of Jesus, he fulfills the Father's divine to-do list. Have a look at verse 36. These things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as, as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Uh, John looks to two Old Testament quotes so that we would understand what's happening after the death of Jesus to his body. And what I want to do today, for the sake of time, is focus on the second one in verse 37. You see, here, John quotes Zechariah chapter 12, and it is an extraordinary piece of scripture. Zechariah speaks about the end of exile for God's people and the shepherd that will lead them. So God, through the prophet Isaiah, promises that he will pour out his spirit and people will look to the one that they have pierced. Which is interesting, because when I think of pierce, I think of nails in Jesus' hands, but John is saying, no, it's the spear in the side. We will look on the one who he has pierced. If we keep reading three more verses, Zechariah 13 verse 1, a fountain of forgiveness will be opened to cleanse people from their sin. Can you see what John is saying about Jesus? How he wants us to understand this event? When we look to the cross, we see Jesus, the one who was pierced. Which means through Jesus, the Father will pour out his spirit on all of his people. And we see this in Acts chapter 1. And through Jesus, God will release a fountain of forgiveness that cleanses people from their sin. Should be a photo. And it's extraordinary. The blood of Jesus is like a fountain flowing throughout history with the forgiveness of God. So even those who hate God and mock Jesus, even the ones who have pierced the Son, even us whose sin took Jesus to the cross, we can be forgiven of our sin because of Jesus' death. All who believe in Jesus and repent of their sin can be forgiven of their sins and made right with God. Remember Kingsley Amos? I shared at the beginning. One of the, he said one of the greatest benefits that is of Christianity is that you can be forgiven of your sins, which must be a wonderful thing. He said, I mean, I carry my sins around with me and there's nobody there to forgive me. It's sad because for Kingsley Amos, there actually is someone there to forgive him. There's someone there to forgive him And there's someone there to forgive me, and there's someone there to forgive you, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this moment of clarity, Kingsley Amos actually identifies our greatest longing and our deepest need to have our sins forgiven and to be made right with God. You see, when you stand before God at the end of time, and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? I think as Australians, we tend to think one of three things. Firstly, uh, we might think that God is love. The Bible says that God is love and that God is forgiving. So when I get to heaven, God is love and so he will just forgive me of my sins, you know. He'll just let me in. He'll tell me, look, you aren't perfect, so just stay at the back for a couple of millennia and don't mess anything up. But come on in. 
The problem is, is that the Bible teaches us that because of our sin, it would be unjust and unloving for God to simply let us into his heaven. The other thing we like to think about is a divine set of scales. We, we imagine that there is a divine set of scales and God will put our good deeds on one side and our bad deeds on the other. And if our good outweigh our bad, then we are generally good people and God will let us into his heaven. But the Bible teaches us that sin is so bad, there, there is nothing good we can do to outweigh our sin. Or we use the comparison chart. You know, we say things like, no one's perfect, I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, uh, we're not like Jesus. So if we were to make a chart of people's perfection, Jesus is up the top, and terrorists and murderers are at the bottom. Now, I'm not as good as Jesus, but let's be honest, I'm not as bad as murderers or terrorists either. I'm somewhere in the middle. So because I am better than someone else, God will let me into his heaven. But again, the Bible says no. That because of our sin, Romans 3.23, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glory and his standard. And therefore, he will not let us into his heaven. And so what are we to do as helpless rebels without a cause? We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God, knowing that we are guilty of sin and rejecting him, sent his son to earth. He lived a perfect life without sin. So when he died on the cross, it was the perfect sinless son of God dying for the sins of all humanity. And it's in the shedding of his blood that he pays for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, declaring to the world that he had conquered sin and death once and for all. Which means anyone who believes in Jesus and asks God to repent, uh, repent of their sin and ask for forgiveness. God can freely forgive us of our sin because the punishment has already been taken. Through Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sin, which is our third point. I mean, after talking about this, I guess the big question is, what do we do with it? I mean, sure, it's a nice thing that Jesus was on the cross and he said some nice words. We might even look at the historical accounts outside, sorry, the extra biblical accounts from non-Christian historians who back these things up. But what are we to do with it? Well, first, if you're someone here today who is still investigating Jesus and thinking and wanting to find out if Jesus is someone who can be trusted, on the cross we see that it is finished. Jesus pays for our sin in full. You can be forgiven of your sin today and have a right relationship with him. If you are someone who has already done that, fantastic. And today is a reminder to keep our eyes fixed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll finish by reading Hebrews chapter 10 together. Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 14. The writer of the Hebrews said this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when he, this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstools. For by one sacrifice, 
He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The priests in the temple had a religious to-do list. The sacrifices of bulls and goats was a daily reminder that blood needed to be shed to take away sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to these religious, sorry, these priests performing their religious duties? Well, God tears up their spiritual to-do list. You see, Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father is a sign of the completed work of Christ on the cross and that there is no other work that can be done to make us right with God. Verse 14, we are made perfect and holy at the cross. So that because of Jesus' righteousness and because of his perfection, for those who trust in Jesus, God looks at you and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and calls you their son, a child of God. And so through faith and repentance, there is no work we can... Aside from faith and repentance, there is no work that we can do for God to love us more, which means we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the cross as an assurance of salvation. How about I pray that God would help us to do that? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the death of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he perfectly fulfilled your eternal plan that he paid for our sin and made a way for us to know you. So, Lord, by your spirit, transform our hearts so that we would have faith in you, that we would trust his sacrifice and fix our eyes upon Jesus. In, in his name we pray. Amen.